Faith and fear in an hour of adversity. Charles Spurgeon said, Our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Our anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Anxiety, worry, fear does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, of its challenges, of its hardships, but only empties today of its strength, of its joy, of its courage. And so may God guard us from fear, guard us from worry, guard us from anxiety. Sufficient for the day is the trouble therein, and sufficient for the day is the grace of God. But when you borrow troubles from tomorrow and drag them into this very day, you'll find that God's grace is not sufficient for that because you have not acted upon God's grace. You have not exercised God's grace. You have not exercised the gift of faith that God and His grace has given you. Instead, you've exercised fear. And fear is contrary to faith. Fear is anti-faith. And so we all struggle with this at various times and various circumstances of life. And no doubt there are many struggling with this now. There's much evidence of that. And certainly there is reason for concern. There is reason to some level, justifiably, for fear. But not fear that undermines our faith. Not fear that causes us to draw back from our Lord. Not fear that empties today of its strength, of its courage, and of its usefulness, makes us useless for the glory of God. And so fear and faith, or faith and fear in the day of adversity. First point, adversity is an opportunity to exercise and grow in faith. Adversity is also an opportunity to show the weakness, the frailty, and the shallowness of your faith. When we face adversity and falter in fear, we should be compelled to repentance. We should be compelled to cry out to the Lord to forgive us for our fear and to increase our faith. We should be cried out as that father said to Jesus of old, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a good confession, is it not? I believe, Help my unbelief. Oh yes, I believe, but not enough. And I recognize that humbly. So help my unbelief, Lord. And that father was facing a very dire adversity. We are facing adversity in America. We are facing adversity in Oregon. We are facing adversity in Portland. And day by day, there are new evidences of that adversity. Concern is justified. I would have us, by the grace of God, I would have every Christian, by the grace of God, respond with greater and greater faith to allow adversity to strengthen you. I would have, by the grace of God, each of us to see this time of adversity, this season of adversity, as a new gym membership. The Lord has invited you to His gym, and He means to make you strong. He's going to put you on that bench press, and he's going to put you on that squat rack. 
and he's going to put you on that cursed treadmill and even that bike. And he's going to require that you work hard, that you strain and sweat and suffer and endure. But it's for the purpose of growing stronger. Is that not why some of you so foolishly bought gym memberships and paid people to yell at you and tell you one more minute, ten more reps? What insanity is that? I learned a long time ago in the Marine Corps that I didn't want anyone telling me how fast to run ever again. That I would set my own pace. And I labored while I was in the Marine Corps to run on my own time and to exercise on my own time so that no one could ever outrun me in those PT times, those official times. And by the grace of God, I would desire to respond the same way, although knowing I cannot. I cannot in the flesh outrun God. I cannot in the flesh outlift God. And He will, if I attempt to do so, make sure that I fail so that I am humbled, so that I am dependent, so that I recognize my frailty and my need for Him. And so we've all been invited into Gold's Gym, not just some rinky-dink Planet Fitness, not the garage, it's Gold's Gym. This is the gym of heaven. And in this gym, you will suffer, you will sweat, you will endure. But by the grace of God, the Spirit of God is in you, you will persevere you will get stronger. And the Lord means for you to get stronger. You will falter. You'll, you'll go flying off the back of the treadmill, so to speak. Right? You'll get stuck under the bench press and cry help or dump the weights. That's always exciting for the whole gym to hear those weights crash to the floor. But by the grace of God, you will endure if indeed you're a child of God. Here's a tip. The harder you work, the more you commit yourself to every rep, to every stride, the easier it gets. Day by day, exercising faith, you get stronger. Day by day, feasting on the Word of God as your necessary food, the protein to build your spiritual muscles, you get stronger. Day by day, falling to your knees and dependent Prayer, exercising faith. That's what prayer is. Prayerlessness is saying to God, I've got this. I've got the whole world in my hands. I can handle this. And the Lord is certain to set you up for a special session in His gym. Because He means to refine you. He means to make you a saint, hagios, a holy one. He means to receive the due glory that His name is worthy in your life. And so welcome to the Lord's gym. The gym of adversity and suffering. Proverbs chapter 24 verse 10 speaks of this adversity. It says in the New King James Version, that which I preach from, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Simple truth profound truth. As I read through Proverbs on a regular basis, I'm always struck by this. And there are, in the flow of life, different seasons. 
And in some seasons, I think yes and amen. And in some seasons, I think ouch and amen. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. In and of ourselves, our strength is infinitely small. But sometimes in our pride, we think we are strong. And the Lord will ordain days of adversity to teach us otherwise. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So what do you do about it? You seek the Lord, who is the source of your strength. You seek the Lord, you cry out to Him humbly, and He will strengthen you. He will not leave you. I rarely do this, but I want to look at several different versions because I found it interesting how other translators translated Proverbs 24.10. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. That's the New American Standard. If you are slack. New King James, if you faint. New American Standard, if you are slack in the day of distress. Now, faint right, we might attribute to some outer influence upon us, not really take responsibility for fainting. Now, as a man, I don't want to be known as having fainting fits. It used to be kind of a thing that people would have fainting fits and, you know, they're just kind of weak temperament or whatever. That's less of a thing these days. But we don't want to be given to fainting fits. And Proverbs 24.10 in the NAS kind of gives you more the idea of your responsibility. If you are slack, slack slack-er comes to mind with slack, if you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. And indeed, our strength is limited, but the day of distress allows us to know how strong we are. There's a thing in the gym, especially in high school sports, max day, right? Especially in football program. It's the day you're going to go in and you're going to max out. You're going to get on the bench, you're going to the squat rack, and you're going to max out, right? And that's the day you prove what? whether you've been working hard all summer in the gym or not, whether you've been eating steak and lifting iron all summer, or whether you've been eating Twinkies and sitting on the couch. It's max day. And that's an important day because on that day, you're put under stress, under adversity, and there is a discernible, undeniable result. You were either able to lift it or you were not. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. You find out the reality of your strength. And that's actually good. You have been measured by adversity and found out the reality or lack thereof of your strength. And that's a good thing. Proverbs 24.10 ESV, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. I can't believe the ESV plagiarized the New King James. Can you believe that? The NIV, Proverbs 24.10, says, If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Interesting. If you falter. Now, the NIV is not a great translation. It is an interpretation where they tried to give you a dynamic equivalence of what they think God meant. That's not a good translation principle. We, We should be trying to give an exact equivalence of what God said, not what God meant. They've done an interpretive process, not a translation process when they're giving you a dynamic equivalence. Nevertheless, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Says the NIV. 
the KJV, King James, says, If thou faint, I wish they would have said faintest. Wouldn't that be better? But if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Nearly identical to the new King James. Proverbs 24.10, the amplified version. I've got to read it louder, so get ready. It's amplified. If you faint, no, sorry. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Again, like the King James, if you faint. And like the new King James and like the ESV, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The amplified version um, stayed True to the text in this case. The Living Bible. The Living Bible is painful. Often it's painful because they're so far from the actual meaning of the text, but it's going to be painful here in a unique way. It reads, you are a poor specimen. (laughs) If you can't stand the pressure of adversity, they just laid it out. The Living Bible, they take some allowances, you know, and some some, uh, liberties. Uh, and translate, but it's like they had a bad night the night before and came to work to translate and said, yeah, you know what? Uh, if you faint in the day of adversity, you know, you're a poor specimen. Uh, <laughs> that, that's getting personal. I do like, though, the personal nature of it, because that really is what the text is saying. If we're not careful, we, we would put the, the fainting like, oh, yeah, it's reasonable, it's understandable, it's, we're not accountable for it. We're not accountable because this, I mean, who could be expected to endure? So there's no accountability. It's like outside of our control. This puts it on you. You're a poor specimen, <laughs> right? If you show up at max day in, in your football camp, it's the end of camp, you know, it's max day, getting ready for the season, and you get under that bench and you just collapse under the bar, the 45-pound bar, you know, the coach is going to say, you're a poor specimen, <laughs> And you know what? It wasn't the 45-pound bar's fault. It wasn't the coach's fault. It was your Twinkie-eating, couch-sitting fault. It was your fault. You're a poor specimen. So we need to own where we're at. When we're faced with adversity and our strength is proven small, we're a poor specimen. And left to ourselves, we're all poor specimens, totally depraved. Bound in iniquity. Faithlessness is our nature. Being full of faith is a fruit of the Spirit of God. It's a grace of God. Proverbs 24.10, T-E-V. Does anyone even know what the T-E-V is? It's today's English version. Today's English version. It says this, if you are weak in a crisis, you are weak indeed. That almost sounds like a fortune cookie. Um, nevertheless, if you're weak in a crisis, you are weak indeed. That's not a good translation, but it does give you a little bit of interpretation. If you're weak in a crisis, adversity, you are weak indeed. Your strength is small. Your strength is limited. You're a poor specimen <laughs> if you're weak in crisis. And so adversity is an opportunity to exercise and grow in faith. Adversity is God inviting you into gold's gym, heaven's gym. And God is the perfect instructor. He's the perfect coach. And He will train you up. He will train you up. But you must be willing. If you're not willing, then you get more laps. If you're not willing, then you you get another rep. If you're not willing, you get to stay an extra hour. If you want to get out of the gym sometime soon... While there's still a little sweat left in your body, 
where there's still a few calories to burn, if you want to get out of the gym, then learn the lesson that God is teaching. Then, then gain the strength that He intends for you to gain through that adversity. So all that to say, God has brought an hour of adversity for our nation to teach His church faith, to make His church strong, and I would say to make His church ready for war, spiritual warfare, spiritual combat. The church has been long sitting on the couch eating Twinkies. And the Lord is demanding that His church get off the couch, get into the gym, get strong, and march to war. Adversity is an opportunity to exercise and grow in faith. Second point, God commands us not to be afraid in adversity. God commands us not to Fear and run from the gym. Run from the adversity. Run from the trainer. Run from the treadmill. Run from the bench press. Run from that cruel squat rack. It's so cruel. No, run to it. Run to it. You know what happens to the athletes that run to the gym all summer? They get big. They get strong. Not just in their body. But they do. They get big and strong. Those young, testosterone-filled High school boys, they get big, they get strong, testosterone's pumping through their blood. It would take me five years to gain what they gain in five weeks. They're in the prime of life. There's a discernible change in them in a few short weeks. But they don't just get big and strong in the flesh. They get strong of heart. It makes them strong for battle. Because that's what a football game is. It's a war. It's a war. You've got your soldiers. They're lined up across from each other. You've got your commanders. Some call them coaches. And you go to war. And spiritually speaking, God is training us for warfare. Far too many Christians, the vast majority of Christians, think this is peacetime. And they thought this was peacetime for generations. And now the Lord has made us very aware that it's wartime. And some still want to sit on the couch eating Twinkies. And some are going to prove they're not actually players. They're not actually soldiers. They've not actually been recruited. They're not actually on the team. They don't belong in the gym. And by the grace of God, some will prove that they may have fallen asleep. They may have slumbered. They, they may have gotten into what uh, Slackerville. If you slack, they may have become a poor specimen for a season, right? You know, it just pains me to see Russell Crowe these days. It pains me. Spiritually speaking, a lot of Christians are looking like Russell Crowe today, not Russell Crowe in Gladiator. And how sad, right? It's not enough to have been a champion historically or at some point in life. We, by the grace of God, are to be continually pressing on from glory to glory, from faith to faith, champions of Christ, champions in gospel warfare. There are no bench sitters on God's team. We're all in the fight. And for years, the church has paid missionaries to go off and be in the fight. 
expected to some level their pastors to be in the fight. But truthfully, some time ago, they, they stopped expecting even pastors to be in the actual gospel fight. But they still expected evangelists for some time. But even now, evangelism is giving away food, not even in Jesus' name, just giving away food, just a humanitarian effort. But you wouldn't even want to mention Jesus' name because it's so offensive. I've had to contend with other pastors who called it baggage. They called the gospel of Jesus Christ baggage and said, you are adding baggage on good works when you insist on giving food with the gospel. That's insanity. Jesus never commanded us to go, therefore, and give good food. He did explicitly command us to go, therefore, and preach the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't have loving, compassionate food ministries as Christians. But hear me, it's neither loving or compassionate if you strip the name and gospel of Jesus from it. All you're doing is giving them food to sin another day. Let the atheists do that. Don't waste your time. We were in Seattle years ago preaching the gospel, and this church shows up. Big church, lots of people, tons of sandwiches. They had bags full of sandwiches and apples and everything, and they were there at Pike's Market, a place of affluence to love on the poor and to give them food. Of course, nobody wanted it because it was a place of affluence. They offered it to us, and I thought, no, no, we, no, you should be giving it to people that need it. And then I thought, no, yeah, we do need it. We're out actually preaching the gospel. It will strengthen us in, in the service of the king actually obeying his commands. And so we, we took it and said thank you, of course. And I'm quite sure the Lord was good with that. On another occasion, I was at a baseball game with one of my children, and a church shows up with a van and a hundred sandwiches, more sandwiches than could possibly be needed. But again, people who could all buy their own sandwiches and plan to, and for the most part didn't really want, you know, they kind of ate them because they felt obligated to, because it was an act of kindness from this church. But it wasn't in Jesus' name, it wasn't with Jesus' gospel, it was just this church, you know, I think you only knew it was a church, maybe because you saw a few t-shirts or the side of the van or something, and they'd taken to call this like pre-evangelism, which is non-evangelism, just so you know. We become ashamed of the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is an offense. And we're afraid of those who will be offended because the world knows that that's the God they hate. That's the God they're rebelling against. And that's the God to whom they must bend their knee. That's the God they must confess as Lord or they're going to perish under his wrath. They know that on some level. And so we withhold the name of Jesus and think we're doing things for God when we give out sandwiches God commands us not to be afraid in adversity. He commands us again and again and again and again. We're going to take a few of the verses that he commands us in and just just look at them briefly. But I want them just to kind of wash over you all. I'll maybe pause on a few. But over and over again, God commands us not to be afraid in adversity. Old Testament and New Testament, God tells his people, do not be afraid in all sorts of situations, all kinds of of situations of adversity, very often involving life and death. In Genesis 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God is the shield. 
and exceedingly great reward. Is that true just for Abram or is it true for all children of Abraham? It's true for all who are in a relationship with God by grace alone, through faith alone. He is our shield and he is our exceedingly great reward. He is our shield until that time he's already appointed that you're going to breathe your last breath. And then he's what? Your exceedingly great and eternal reward. What is the glory of heaven? That your family members will be there that were in Christ? That you won't be around mean people anymore? That there's a big buffet? The glory of heaven is that God is there. That's the glory of heaven. Now there are other blessings, but the glory of heaven, the central glory of heaven is that God is there. He is our exceedingly great reward. He is our eternal inheritance. In Genesis chapter 43, verse 23, it says, Peace be with you and do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And this is, this is a lesser use of this, but of course that's Joseph to his brothers. But he speaks again to them in Genesis 50 verse 19 through 21. Now he's revealed who he is to them. And they're fearing that he's going to kill them. Why? Because they betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And so in Genesis 50 verse 19, he says, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph had learned God's sovereignty twice over, at least, when they sold him into slavery. And then he escaped slavery by the grace of God and ascended in Potiphar's house, only to be cast into prison, as it were, because of Potiphar's harlot wife falsely accused him of seeking an illicit relationship with him, and he fled, leaving his cloak behind. Nevertheless, God rescued him out of that prison by giving him a prophetic dream, and he then, what, ascended to be head of all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And so he learned through what? Adversity to trust God. And he here instructs his brothers, do not be afraid. Why? Am I in the place of God? Look, God has ordained this. God has ordained this. Clearly. For this very hour. And so now I am here to bless you. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Exodus fourteen thirteen. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Do not be afraid. So sometimes it's God speaking directly to God's people or to an individual servant of God. And sometimes it's God's people or God's servant speaking to God's people. But there's a consistent call to throw off fear. Do not be afraid. What are they facing here? Well, they're, they're facing a very irate Egyptian army because 10 plagues have been brought to bear upon them from the hand of God. 
They had released Israel under duress. And now they'd had time to rethink that. And so they loaded up the chariots and they came out pursuing Israel. And Israel comes to the Red Sea and, whoop, we're stuck. (laughs) Yet they're not stuck because God is sovereign overseas, red and otherwise. So he parts the water. There's dry land in between. There's a wall of water on the left and the right. Israel passes through Egypt insanely, follows after. I can imagine when Pharaoh commanded his troops to go in, there might have been a few that said, Sir, (laughs) this isn't natural. (laughs) Wall of water. And I don't think the God who's holding up these walls is on our side. I mean, somebody might have had a thought. But sure enough, they went in and Israel did not fight that day. God fought and wiped out Pharaoh's army. Now, that's no guarantee that, that you or I will have victory in a given circumstance. I do guarantee you, you will have victory in every circumstance God intends you to have victory. And that God intends you to have the victory of faith in every circumstance. Fighting a good fight, trusting Him for the results. Whether the results are 5,000 saved and your arm is falling off because you had to baptize 5,000 souls, or the very next day preaching the gospel and they strip you and whip you and put you in stocks for the same ministry. The Lord is sovereign over the outcome. We simply obey in faith for His glory. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, it says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out from the land of Egypt. And so they leave Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. They're afraid. And the Lord says, Do not be afraid. The Lord rescues them. Wipes out Egypt's army. They get out to the desert and they begin to cry out against Moses and say, you brought us out here to die. We don't have any water. The Lord provides water. A matter of days later, they say again, you brought us out here to die. We don't have any food. The Lord provides food, manna from heaven. A matter of days later, they cry out, all we have is this stinking manna. We want to go back to Egypt. Were they learning in the school of adversity? Were they learning in Gold's Gym? Were they getting strong in Gold's Gym? You would think, you know, 10 plagues, wall of water, wiping out Egypt's army, water from a rock, manna from heaven. You'd think they might learn, even though there was adversity. But often you and I, just like them, focus on the adversity more than the glory. We miss the glory of 10 plagues. Red Sea parted, army wiped out, water from rocks, manna from heaven. We miss the glory and all we can see is it's hot out here and now there are dietary restrictions, there's only manna and you know what, I I like a little Lipton tea in my water. I want to go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. I'm afraid out here following God in faith, following God who put a visible symbol of his presence before you day and night. Visibly present. And yet we, like Israel, so often in the day of adversity, focus on the adversity, not in the manner which God would have us to focus, that we might overcome it in faith and follow Him in faith, but wallow in self-pity and fear and worry. Oh, well, we may have had manna today, but what will we have tomorrow? 
We may have had water today, but what will we have tomorrow? You brought us out here to die. And so it comes time to face other armies in Deuteronomy, and they're again afraid. And the Lord tells them, do not be afraid. And they face these giants in the land of Canaan. And the Lord tells them, do not be afraid through Joshua and Caleb. No, surely the Lord will give us this land. He has promised to give us this land. And yet they are afraid and they pull back and the Lord sends them out to the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years until that entire generation dies off. And we may well be in, in a wilderness and I don't know how long it's going to last, saints. I do guarantee God's going to purify His church. I do guarantee most of these apostate churches are going to close their doors forever or become savage against the true church. But we have been much like Israel. And now we're in the desert. The wilderness of sin, literally, S-I-N. And they suffered out there until that entire generation died. I pray, you know, we'll have some Joshua and Caleb's that live. A few Moses that make it to the promised land, right to the edge at least. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, it says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a recipe for faith, for victory, for strength, to abolish fear and discouragement, to be strong and courageous. That's your workout plan spiritually. That's how to become a valiant soldier of Christ. Right there in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Be in the Word. Let the Word be in you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Be in it. Let it be and rule in you. I told you last week, be in the book of Acts. Be reading the book of Acts as if those are your people, as if that's your mission, as if you identify with them because they are your people, that is your mission, and you do identify with them if you're Christ. And they were a people in the midst of adversity, advancing the kingdom of Christ valiantly. Joshua chapter 8, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. Arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Until I hear a trumpet and shout, I assume God has given Portland into my hand and yours. That is our assumption. That he means to save a great people out of this mass of dying sinners. I don't care what your eschatology is unless your eschatology infringes upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. If somehow it changes the gospel, assaults or undermines the gospel in its content or in its ministry. If your eschatology has you retreating and hiding and waiting for a rapture, then you've allowed your eschatology to infringe upon the Great Commission. Soteriology 
must always lead the way in your theology. Eschatology is the end. Soteriology, the gospel, is the tip of the spear. So let us press on for Christ. We don't know when the trumpet shall sound. Let us be found fighting a good fight when it should sound. Assuming like so many generations before that this is not the last generation, despite how it might look to us. And that even if it is, what should we be doing all the more? Laboring to rescue perishing sinners who if we believe the end draweth nigh will all soon be in hell. Again, Joshua 8.1, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. You are people of war. Not people of the couch. You're people of war. Christ is the captain of our salvation. The New Testament speaks of Him enlisting us as soldiers. That great commission, that's a great commission of a commander, of a general saying that He has all authority and commanding us to go and conquer all nations in His name with the gospel. That's our vision. That's our passion. That's our aim. It's the Great Commission. In the Old Testament, they did it with spear and sword. In the New Testament, we do it with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. God said to Joshua, In Joshua chapter 8, verse 1, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. But in Joshua 10, 25, Joshua now, taking that same message, says to the people, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. God had given them a great victory. And now Joshua's just quoting God. I can look back in the halls of history and see great victory after great victory after great victory. And say, saints, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and have good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. They will either be redeemed, which is our goal. Saved, gloriously, radically saved. Those who now are your enemies for the cause of Christ will be made your fellow soldiers. Or they will die in their sins. Nevertheless, Christ will reign. His word will not return void. It will accomplish what he pleases. All those whom Christ died will be saved through hearing the word of God. We know there's a great number out there yet to be saved for whom Christ pronounced to tell us die. Our mission is to find them and not to decide Portland cannot be saved. We're to decide, Lord, give us Portland or we die. We're not living just to eke out an existence here in Portland. We're living to glorify Christ in Portland by lifting up His name and His gospel that every knee would bow to Him while they yet live. Every knee will bow to Him. Every knee in Portland. And remember the Lord is in His providence. He's gathering every rebel in America to Portland. Coming to keep Portland weird. It's a great mission field right out there. What the devil means for evil, God means for good. The devil gathered Egypt together to march to war against Israel. And the Lord allowed them to come and wiped them out in that Red Sea. And the Lord may physically wipe out his enemies right here in Portland. I'd rather see him save them, convert them. 
bring them from death to life. There's another story that comes to mind. Oh, yeah, Nineveh! You know Nineveh? Those Ninevites, they're so wicked, they're so nasty, they're so vile. Those Ninevites surely can't be saved. God said, go, go to those Ninevites. And the prophet of God, Jonah, said, no, I won't go. How did Jonah learn to obey God? How did Jonah get up off the couch, so to speak, and go to Nineveh? He learned through the school of adversity. If ever there was a gold gem, the belly of the whale was a gold gem, a gem sent right from heaven, from the hand of God, for him to learn through adversity, obedience, and faith. And oh, what a great work God did. God saved that entire city-state in one glorious act. In Joshua 11, verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. There was a great army, an army like a sea before him. And Joshua was again, no doubt, tempted to be afraid. Perhaps maybe even a little fear crept into his great valiant heart. But the Lord again said to him, Do not be afraid. The Lord led him from faith to faith, battle to battle, and he will do the same with you. As long as you're yet alive, there will be another battle yet to be fought. And often they're, they're not battles you could foresee. They're battles that are different, battles that are perfectly designed. Like, like a great coach, he comes up with new and interesting ways to make you suffer, to make you stronger. And if you did not play football... You just don't know how men can make you suffer. If you didn't endure boot camp, you just don't know. Uh, new and creative ways. And some of them were sadistic in it, mind you. But God is perfectly gracious and loving in it. Working it for your good and His glory. That you might have an imperishable crown to cast at His feet. In Second Kings chapter 1, verse 15... The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, we leave our friend, our valiant warrior Joshua behind, and we go to the prophet Elijah. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, it is because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. He went and spoke to the king that way. We are God's prophets. We are God's, not in the sense of foretelling the future, but his messengers. And we come under God's authority. We're under the authority of the king of kings. Go, therefore. They need to hear our message. They do not need to see cowering Christians. They need to see valiant prophets of God, messengers of God, speaking the truth of God. This evil will come to an end. I pray it comes to an end now. That's our message to them. Your evil will come to an end. I pray you repent now and you're spared. But be sure of this. Your genocide of the unborn your perversion of children, your invasion of women's locker rooms and bathrooms, and all your other evils will come to an end. God is a just judge, and His judgment is coming for them individually, and one day it will come corporately for the corporate uprising of sinful mankind that Psalm 2 speaks of. And the wrath of the Christ, the Anointed One, 
will be unleashed just a little and they will be slain in an instant. We are his messengers and we have a message for them. We don't cower. We say to Herod, you shall not have your brother's wife. We say to Joe Biden, you shall not have a pervert in a dress as a health secretary. And you shall not pervert our children. And you shall not murder them. We don't cower. Oh, and we say to Representative Cleaver, you shall not pray in the name of a God of many names, Brahma, amen, and a woman. That is blasphemy. And your blasphemy will find you out, Mr. Cleaver. You must repent. 2 Kings 19, verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send my spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And so the Assyrians had come against Israel, and Israel was afraid, and God said to the servants of King Hezekiah, do not be afraid of these threats, these idle threats. Hear me, in the ultimate sense, the threats you're hearing, the criminalization, the pronouncements of those who believe the Word of God and hold to the Constitution now being terrorists, do not be afraid of them. Their sins will find them out. Our King is victorious in the end. And if we will fight a good fight of faith, if we will stand up valiantly in faith, I believe our king will be victorious even now. And the freedoms we have enjoyed that flow from a Christian worldview, we will yet enjoy for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel and righteousness in the earth. But that doesn't happen through cowardice. It didn't happen through cowardice at the conception of our nation, and it won't happen through cowardice now. In 2 Chronicles 32... Verse 7, it says, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. And with him is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. That's my goal today, that you would be strengthened. Through all these admonitions to not be afraid, but fight a good fight. War on for the glory of God. Advance the kingdom of God in the earth. Do not be afraid. Let us press on to the New Testament. Luke 12, verses 4 through 9. The Lord Jesus speaking. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you of whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men... Him, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Dear saints, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. 
Thus saith the Lord Jesus. But, in contrast, he says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That is God and God alone. Fear God alone. And you need fear no man and no circumstance. For God is sovereign over all men in all circumstances. God will, through his word and the power of his spirit, if you cry out to him, set you free from fear. I know it to be true because I'm just a man like you. And so many times, God has taken fear and replaced it with faith and strength and courage. Time and time again. Cry out to God. Repent of fear. Ask that He fill you with the power of His Spirit that you might walk in faith. And He will do so. He's a faithful Father. He gives no stones to His children. He only gives fish. In order that you might be able to trust Him who is sovereign over sparrows to be sovereign over you. He who is sovereign over the very hairs of your head to be sovereign over your life. And thus you are set free to confess Him before men, to confess His law, His gospel, His judgment, the narrow path to heaven. You're free from fear to confess Him before men. And thus He will confess you before the holy angels of God. But He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, I don't know where that line is crossed, where you don't have genuine faith, you're denying Christ. I don't want you to find out. I want you to live in victory. I want you to live in faith. I want Christ to be magnified in your life. But this is a very real warning from the Lord Jesus. And I would give one further warning from Revelation, that in the list of those who will be in hell, the first sinner listed, the first sinner is not the homosexual, is not the murderer, is not the liar, is not the idolater. The first sinner listed of those who will be in hell is the coward. That should be terrifying for all of us. If we are habitual cowards, we are not evidencing faith, saving faith. Now, at some time, we will always, while we're yet in the flesh, fail and be cowards. But when we are, When we succumb to fear, we need to repent and cry out to God that we would be strong. That we would be courageous. That we would not fear. That we would confess Christ before men. As 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Or as Paul speaks of in Philippians Chapter 1, in verse 14, Most of the brethren in the Lord have become more confident by my chains, are more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Becoming more confident by my chains have been emboldened to speak the word of God without fear. Now, I don't want anyone to go to jail for Christ. I don't want anyone to be imprisoned for Christ or to be killed for Christ on a certain level, and yet I want all those who are to go to jail, who are to go to prison or to die for Christ, that God has ordained it so, that He has designed for such, 
to do so that the rest may also learn not to fear. That they might be much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's incumbent upon each one of us to live lives of valiant faith, no matter what suffering may come, that the rest would not fear, but would also live lives of valiant faith, being emboldened to speak the word without fear. And what does that say to the world? What does it say of all their threats? What does it say when, should they take our property, should they take our freedom, should they take our very lives, we press on for Christ? It's a warning to them of judgment to come, of perdition. And it's a testimony to us of the genuine saving grace that is at work in our lives. That's what Philippians says later in chapter 1. To us, it's a proof of salvation. To them, of perdition. The church has marched forward historically in the face of tyranny, in the face of dictatorship, in the face of suffering, bloodied, bruised, abused, and murdered for the cause of Christ, and the church has advanced. And that's what you read in the book of Acts. Our forefathers, beaten, bloodied, bruised, jailed, imprisoned, murdered, and the kingdom of Christ is advancing all the while. There is no retreat. Revelation 2 verse 10 says, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcome shall not be hurt by the second death. That's Christ to his church. And there have been Seasons where this is applied to the church explicitly all through the history of the church. And it would seem to some level we are entering into such a season. Let us, by the grace of God, be found faithful in our day. So that should Christ tarry, history will record that there were men and women of faith in the earth. And our children and their children we'll be able to look back and say, saints lived before us. Saints were strong and courageous before us so that we today might have the faith once for all committed to the saints. C.T. Studd, great soldier of the cross, said this, Heroism is the lost chord, the missing note of the present-day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero, A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier who has not been stirred to scorn and mirth at the very thought of a chocolate soldier. In peace, true soldiers are captive lions fretting in their cages. War gives them their liberty and sends them like boys bounding out of school to obtain their heart's desire or perish in the attempt. Battle is the soldier's vital breath. Peace turns him into a stooping asthmatic. War makes him a whole man again and gives him the heart, strength, and vigor of a hero. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ, a hero par excellence, braver than the bravest, scorning the softest seductions of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting in the smell of the fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish 
or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, a little frilled white paper to preserve his dear little delicate constitution. To the chocolate soldier, the very thought of war brings a violent attack of feverish chills. While the call to battle always finds him with the palsy, I really cannot move, he says. I only wish I could, but I can sing, and here are some of my favorite lines. I must be carried to the skies on a flowery bed of ease. Let others fight to win the prize or sail through the bloody seas. Mark time, Christian heroes, never go to war. Stop and mind the babies playing on the floor. Wash and dress and feed them 40 times a week till they're roly-poly pudding, so to speak. Round and round the nursery, let us ambulate. Sugar and spice and all that's nice must be on our slate. God never was a chocolate manufacturer and never will be. God's men are always heroes. In Scripture, you can trace their giant foot tracks down the sands of time. Just look to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Nathan and John the Baptist and Paul and Peter And Stephen, whom the Lord Jesus stood up for, seated at the right hand of the Father, he stood up to receive the soldier. Stephen, who fought a good fight and went into glory to be received by his king, a champion. May God grant that we would live as champions in our realm of experience and influence fighting a good fight for Christ our King. Let's pray. Father, guard us, I pray, from fear, from worry, from anxiety, from retreat. Guard us, Lord, from faithlessness. Fill us in your grace through the power of your Spirit with faith. Grant that adversity would make us stronger, not weaker. Grant that hardship would compel us to become strong, Lord, and mighty in Christ Jesus, our champion, who has given us the tools of war, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and a waist to be girded with truth and feet to be shod with the preparation of the gospel and a shield of faith and a sword to wield. Go before us, I pray, Lord, in the days ahead. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.